Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Timothy Miller, author of the new novel, The Strange Case of the Dutch Painter. Timothy, welcome to the podcast. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, The Strange Case of the Dutch Painter, how would you describe the novel? Well, it's a uh, historical mystery. It's a uh, Sherlock Holmes tale, my second Sherlock Holmes tale. And uh, basically, when you boil it all down uh, to it, it's uh, Sherlock Holmes investigates the murder of Vincent van Gogh. Uh, and uh, because the question is, why would anyone murder Vincent van Gogh? It also becomes a sort of an art heist tale which uh, I love, art heist tales. Uh, so uh, uh, this uh, uh, was very serendipitous for me. Um, and uh, we basically follow uh, Sherlock Holmes through the history of Vincent van Gogh because the whole question of whether he was murdered and whether he has anything to do with uh, this art forgery ring is whether he was sane or not, which was my question uh, at the uh, very beginning of uh, the idea. And so uh, we followed him uh, through uh, from Auvergne, uh, through Paris, and down to Arles, and over to Montpellier, and uh, up to Saint Remy, and back to Paris, and. Uh, we find out a little bit about the history of Vincent van Gogh and uh, from a different point of view uh, from the normal histories. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the strange case of the Dutch painter? Oh, I do. Uh, although it was about uh, 40 years ago, maybe um, I was in a, uh, card shop and uh there was a card that uh had a uh uh self-portrait of van gogh and i was looking at it and uh but at that time i knew about as much about van gogh as anybody else does that he was a uh gifted painter but insane and had uh, chopped his ear off and had uh, later on uh, committed suicide and I looked at that uh, self-portrait, and I thought, and and uh, when he chopped his ear off, he had, of course, given it to his lady love, supposedly, uh, who was a prostitute in Arles at the time. Uh, and I thought, well, now, if he was going to give something to his lady love, why would it be an ear and not an eye? That would be the real sacrifice for a painter, wouldn't it? And that was when I began exploring the uh, history of Van Gogh. And uh, several questions uh, uh, came about, uh, such as, did he actually cut his ear off? Did he actually commit suicide? Was he actually mad? And uh, finally, I put the whole uh, question into the hands of uh, Sherlock Holmes, because he's was far better at uh, figuring these things out than I am. And so I'm curious, when did you first read the Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories? 
Um, to tell you the truth, I was never interested as a child in uh, <laughs> mysteries, uh, except uh, maybe the Nancy Drew mysteries. Uh, but uh, and so I was never interested in uh, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, then uh, I was living in Houston, and uh, my roommate at the time had the complete works of uh, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it was a rainy, uh, disgusting weekend in uh, Houston. And I decided, well, what the hell? I'll, uh, I'll give it a try. And by the end of the weekend, I had read the entire uh, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And was a fan from then on. That's a great memory. Yes. Why, why do you think Sherlock Holmes is still such a popular character in books and on the screen? I think it's because of the mystery of Sherlock Holmes. I think it's because we don't know about him. We can't figure him out. And I think that Doyle did that intentionally. I think that's why Watson exists is to shield Holmes uh, from our knowledge. Uh, and uh, I think the, the worst Holmes stories are the ones that are actually narrated by Holmes, uh, because then we get a little view into his uh, mind, and uh, it's not all that interesting. But as long as uh, he remains a mystery to us, and uh, Lord knows I've tried to figure him out, uh, but, uh, I think that's what we keep doing is we keep trying to figure out how Sherlock Holmes works and not, not simply how he works as a detective, but how he works as a human being. Uh, I mean, uh, what is his history? Uh, we know so little about him and, uh, so little about his brother, but, uh, we must have figured out that, uh, he must have had a very strange upbringing, whatever it was. And I've tried to explore some of that in uh, my books. That's interesting. I'm curious, do you have a favorite Sherlock Holmes story yourself? Uh, yes, I do. And uh, it's, a, it's a rather obvious one. It's uh, Silver Blaze, which is the uh, one about uh, the uh, strange uh, happening of the dog in the night because I love the idea of a negative clue. You know, it's not simply <laughs> what's there, but what's not there. Right. And I'm curious, do you have a favorite Sherlock Holmes pastiche novel or short story? Um, yes, I, I don't read very many Sherlock Holmes pastiches sure, because mm -hmm. I'm afraid of letting them influence me. Right, right. My original influence was The 7% Solution by Nicholas Meyer. And uh, he really opened up the uh, uh, doors for me and uh, gave me, uh, with the uh, inclusion of uh, Sigmund Freud, gave me to understand that there are some were some other uh, people who were like Sherlock Holmes but, you know, not exactly like him. And uh, that's what I actually have in uh, this book is the uh, Yvonne Lermaleaf character, whose name is not actually Yvonne Lermaleaf. Uh, 
is uh, a Sherlock Holmes type in that uh, he uh, investigates art, art forgeries, and art authentication. And uh, he was a real person and uh, a disciple of Morelli, who was the first scientific art uh, connoisseur. Gotcha. I'm curious, what was your own writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Well, it started when I was six years old and I had just learned to print. Uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, thought uh, the printing was such a wonderful uh, gift that I immediately tried to write a book about my monsters. And I got about uh, 12 pages in and uh, finally uh, decided that I couldn't get any further with it. Uh, but I've always written since. Um, possibly I was too good a writer in that I did not know how to rewrite. And rewriting is the key to writing. Uh, so I had to learn slowly how to rewrite first from poetry, then stories, then screenplays, and finally novels. And it took an awfully long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you were to look at my first drafts of novels, they're completely, there's such a mess that you cannot uh, understand them at all. And it's really not until about the third or fourth draft that you can understand anything. So, so what was your writing process when you were working on the strange case of the Dutch painter? Are you someone who outlines the novel extensively before you begin, or do you just dive into the narrative with a, with an idea of what you want to write? It's, it's different with every book. Uh, with this one, you have to understand that Although it's my second Sherlock Holmes book, it's actually my first Sherlock Holmes project uh, because it was my first uh, screenplay uh, written many years ago uh, when uh, I could actually do nothing with it once it was written because uh, Sherlock Holmes was still under lock and key. Uh, and uh, so when I decided to uh, well, I, actually, I originally wanted to write it as a novel, but couldn't figure out who the narrator was. And that was the key. I was learning, uh, first of all, you know, that there always needs to be a narrator in a Sherlock Holmes story, whether it's Watson or another person. And uh, so once I did that, once I figured out who the narrator was, uh, then everything sort of fall into place. Uh, and, uh, I could realize, I realized that I could look at Sherlock Holmes from an entirely new perspective because these, uh, his Watson character, his narrator was entirely new to Sherlock Holmes. Sure. Um, I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I think what you have to realize when you're writing and you're, you know, you're alone there at your desk and uh, completely fed up is that, uh, I mean, uh, the way I look at it is Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 
the, your writing is complete garbage. Tuesday, <laughs> Thursday, and Saturday, it's absolute genius. So you don't have to, you don't want to get yourself too low or too high at any time. Uh, but you want to just keep writing. And if you keep writing, you will get better. It's like any other muscle, any other skill. Writing uh, is like playing a guitar or learning to ride a bike. It's uh, it's all muscle memory. Uh, and so just keep at it. That's great advice. Well, are you working on a new novel now? Um, unfortunately, I'm working on two novels right now. <laughs> and uh, I did not intend for that to happen. Uh, I have been uh, working on a uh, uh, what was going to be my last Sherlock Holmes novel uh, taking place near the end of uh, Sherlock Holmes' life. And uh, it was going to be about uh, uh, King Tut. And the discovery of King Tut and uh, King Tut's curse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got through about the uh, second uh, uh, draft of that and just realized that I still had a huge amount of research to do. And I'm still doing the research. And I was slogging through it. And then somebody happened to mention to me, you know, so somebody is always saying, well, you know, what if you had Sherlock Holmes doing this, you know, Sherlock Holmes beats Godzilla or <laughs> Sherlock Holmes beats uh, uh, Zorro, whatever. Uh, and unfortunately, somebody said, what if Sherlock Holmes met Ebenezer Scrooge? And I laughed it off. And then I thought, that's a possibility. Because I absolutely adore Dickens. Sure, sure. And I've always wanted to write a Christmas goose story. And I thought, well, then in this case, I could take Sherlock Holmes at the very beginning of his career when he was an actor uh, before Watson. And so now I'm torn between two, uh, two stories uh, at opposite ends of his life. And I'll probably. Uh, wind up writing both of them. Uh, but I don't know yet, which, uh, I mean, I'm sure my editor would, uh, love for me to, uh, decide and, uh, <laughs> would, uh, love for me to, uh, do the King Tut one because that's the one I promised him, but now I'm not so sure. That's great. Well, you have to keep us updated on both of those. Yeah, I certainly will. Great. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, well, I just read the night circus, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. Actually, I listened to the night circus and it was the first novel that I've actually listened to. Uh, and it was the perfect introduction to, uh, listening to novels. Um, I've been reading, uh, these, uh, series of books, uh, uh, that take place in the twenties, uh, in uh, very sophisticated manor houses, it's the uh, by Karen Manuhin. Uh, it's the uh, Heathcliff Linux stories, uh, and uh, 
they're partly funny and partly uh, serious. So uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Lord Peter Whimsey, uh, but lighter. That's great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Um, well, I'm at, uh, the strange cases of Sherlock.com and, uh, I'm working on something, uh, on Pinterest for, uh, the, uh, paintings mentioned in the novel. I want to, uh, have a place where people can go and actually look at the paintings. Uh, so I'm hoping to get that up, uh, within the next week or two. And uh, that will be uh, the strange case of the Dutch painter. Uh, That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Timothy Miller, author of the new novel, The Strange Case of the Dutch Painter. As we've discussed, the novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Timothy, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah, this was great. Thanks a lot. Renee hauled me back into the shadow of the second doorway. Just as Theo Van Gogh emerged from his brother's room and went downstairs. Vernet darted into the room behind him. I was shocked by his effrontery, but I could see nothing for it but to follow. In for a penny, as the English say. Even with the door open, the attic room was suffocatingly hot. A reeking of sweat and carbolic acid mixed with cheap tobacco and linseed oil. It was bare as a monk's cell. The smoky light of an oil lamp revealed Van Gogh's elder brother, huddled in fitful slumber on a mean iron cot shoved against the wall. There was a rush-sheeted chair playing the part of a nightstand with a lit pipe sitting on it the smoke curling up toward the canted ceiling. On the opposite wall stood a washstand with an empty bowl. That was the furniture in its entirety. But the room was anything but empty. Canvases were stacked against every wall four deep, claiming almost every inch of floor space. 
Canvases were hung haphazardly above them. The town of Auvers and its environs painted from every conceivable perspective, every winding street, every red-tiled villa, every hillside vineyard dismantled and transported hither. If he'd only lived in a little town two months, the man must have rattled off a painting a day. In the smoky light, the garishly colored paintings throbbed with life, threatening to erupt from the walls. I could hardly take my eyes off them. Vincent's easel stood in a corner, a painting still strapped to it. It looked to be a field of golden corn beneath a lowering sky with a rain of black dashes slapped across it. Birds of ill omen, perhaps? What kind of mind conceived such waking nightmares? Vinay appeared oblivious to the paintings. He moved to the invalid's side. Vincent van Gogh was a grim sight. He had been lying in the same clothes among the soiled, blood-stained bed linen for two days. Someone had attempted to wash him as he lay there, to little effect. His red hair and beard were matted. His flesh was gray. I couldn't help noticing that his left ear was mangled. It looked as if the lower half had been sliced right off. This is what the confraternity of painters had devolved into, I thought to myself. The masters of the Renaissance had all been apprenticed in their youth to master craftsmen. Michelangelo to Girondale, Da Vinci to Verrocchio, Evergiotto had his chimnabue. But these new painters, even the ones who started out in the studios, submitted to no masters. Each seemed to wander alone in his own fever dream, isolated from those who came before and those who came after. It was the perfect formula for madness. Vernet slipped a hand under the dressing, probing the wound. His own face seemed to take on a tinge of grey. Too late, too late, he muttered, more to himself than to me. Why did they wait? The painter groaned, arching his spine beneath Renée's hand. His lips worked, repeating the last words he had said to his brother. Ask Gachet. Ask him what, Vincent? Renée asked, soft but urgent. Ask Gachet what? Vincent stirred again, but made no answer. Vernet hovered over him, his ear almost against Vincent's lips, willing him to speak. About Olympia. Who is Olympia? We waited to the breaking point of our nerves, but no further answer came. Those were the last words we heard from Vincent. Perhaps the last he spoke in his life 
Vinay brushed his lips against the dying man's forehead, a gesture both tender and unexpected. He's burning up with fever. There were footsteps on the stair. We fled again toward the second bedroom, but the door handle started to turn before our eyes. Fene hustled me back into the shadows at the end of the hall, putting a finger to his lips. As the Ravu girl arrived on the landing, Tommy Hershig popped out of the second bedroom, scaring her. Oh, Monsieur Hershig, I didn't know you were back. So Hershig was the occupant of the second bedroom, it seemed. She carried a stack of towels under one arm and a pitcher of water in her hand. For his part, Hershig, now decked out in a clean, if ill-fitting suit, his hair was damp from a quick wash. How's the old fellow then? He nodded toward Vincent's door. For answer, she only shook her head, her eyes on the floor. Don't worry, Goldilocks. I think the old bear is only shamming. I could hear him clomping about in there just now, talking to himself the way he does. She looked at him strangely, biting her lower lip. She dipped her head and went into Vincent's room. Once she was inside, we followed Hershig down the stair. He was too preoccupied with combing his hair to notice we were behind him. Nor did anyone pay attention as we rejoined the company. Any noise we made was swallowed up in the buzz of conversation and the clinking of cutlery. The room was beginning to fill up. We took an empty table. Madame Ravu cast an inquiring look our way. I nodded eagerly. Auvers is still a country town, as far as mealtimes go. The Ravus had their hands full, dishing out dinner to their boarders. There was a crowd of Americans at one table, always the loudest voices in any room, and a mix of cosmopolitan and Picardy accidents emanating from the other tables. Hershig joined Gachet at the table next to us. They nodded briefly to one another, exchanging desultory greetings, but Gachet was already deep in conversation with a bottle of wine, while young Hershig's eyes uh, tended to follow Madame Ravu as she glided around the room, serving her guest. Tommy, have you seen Monsieur Valdivial tonight? Will he be dining with us? The lady called across the room to him. Not he. He's afraid Vincent might take it into his head to shoot someone else. Uh, I beg your pardon, Monsieur Theo. Hershik's cheeks reddened as he realized Van Gogh was present. Theo Van Gogh stood at the, at the counter, brow knitted, working through a stack of telegraph forms. There were bread and wine before him, and a bowl of broth going cold, all untouched. He did not appear to have heard Hershik's remarks. Indeed, he appeared unaware of any activity around him. His face was waxen, and his hands trembled. I realized then that he was more than simply affected. He was positively ill.
Michelle Hersig brings up an interesting point. Where is the gun Vincent van Gogh used to shoot himself? asked René, turning to Gachet. I don't know, Gachet, a ruse stored into the deeps of his wine glass. Do the gendarmes have it? They weren't able to find it. Vernet threw up his hands and turned away. Don't be alarmed, monsieur, the doctor jeered. He doesn't have the gun now. He didn't shoot himself in bed. Vernet turned back with a sudden gleam in his eye. Where did he shoot himself? Gachet waved vaguely. Out beyond the cemetery in the fields. They found his easel and paints up there. He took his easel with him when he went to kill himself? I didn't say that. Perhaps he went out to paint, but fell into a spasm of despair, and he decided to take his life. With cases like his, the black mood may hit like a stroke of lightning. You merely reversed the conundrum. Why should he take a gun with him to paint? Hershig broke in with his mouth full. Scarecrows. Vincent turned to him with a look of amused astonishment. Monsieur, please elaborate. Vincent had been working on some paintings of wheat fields. Not much of a subject as far as I'm concerned. A lot of straight yellow lines. But he wasn't one to listen to advice. And he loved yellow. My God, he'd go through six tubes a day. Yes, and the gun? Well, he didn't want to paint crows, but where you've got wheat, you'll get crows, and he couldn't bring himself to ignore them. So he borrowed a gun from someone and shot it off to scare them away. What kind of gun was it? Never saw it. Heard it, though. So did the crows, he mimed, aiming a rifle at the sky and squeezing the trigger. Boom! Gachet snorted into risen. It was a revolver, one of those American guns. A Colt, I think they call it. Vernet whipsawed back again. Doctor, he did show the weapon to you? Where? I believe we were in my study. Vincent was fussing over a painting I'd acquired that hadn't yet been framed. He claimed the paint was cracking. One of his paintings? No, no, uh, a friend of his. Uh, Guillaume, I think it was. Perhaps you know the fellow? Well, someday you will. All the world will know his name. I'm something of a collector. It takes a discriminating eye, but it also takes time and care. Sometimes I don't have the time. I have a busy practice in the city, introducing some exciting new procedures. The mind is a fascinating, I'm sure it is. And the gun? Oh, well, uh, Vincent blew everything out of proportion. First he was shouting, then he was screaming. He pulled the gun from his pocket and waved it around like a man possessed. What did you do? I... I stared at him. Very firmly, you know. 
Gachet assumed what he must have thought was a fearsome expression, though it nearly made me laugh out loud. He looked as if he had the toothache. And that was all. He lowered his head and skulked off. Truly, you must have been a matador in your another life, Doctor. You made no attempt to disarm him? Were you aware of his history of violence toward himself? That violence you speak of, it's not Vincent. It's an aberration. I thought that could always be said of madness, I said. I hadn't meant to speak out, but really it needed to be said. I don't know what can always be said of madness, Gachet snapped back. Are you an alienist? Vernet pursued doggedly. No one asked what he did with the gun? Everyone asked. The police questioned him till they were blue in the face. Ask him yourself. Monsieur Theo, did he tell you anything about it? Van Gogh stared up with blind eyes. He collected his thoughts like shells upon a distant shore. He noticed the crowd, the evening light turning saffron. He caught sight of the landlord, a familiar landmark. Monsieur Avoux, if you could see to it that these are sent as soon as possible, he pushed the forms across the counter to him. I should rejoin my brother. Vernet stood and crossed to the bar. I can take these for you, monsieur. I need to send a wire myself. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.